from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the latest on ag and sustainability direct from California's breadbasket, why Apple is buying and preserving forests, why pension funds are investing in renewables, and Ford turns to Jose Cuervo to source a next-gen plastic. We're driving under the influence this week on 350. It's July 22nd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350 here in GreenBiz Studio at GreenBiz Headquarters. I'm with Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hello. How's it going? It's going great. Um, I'm excited for you. You're about to uh, take off on a little bit of a journey. Want yeah. to tell us about it? I got my shiny new passport. Shiny. Thank you, State Department. Yeah. I never go anywhere without shining my passport. <laughs> Uh, expensive, so it better be shiny. But uh, yeah, I'm heading to Morocco for a couple weeks. Very excited. I looked up the temperature. I think it was 113 in Marrakesh, so nice and balmy. A hot time in the old town tonight. Um, so that's not doesn't have anything to do with COP22 being in Marrakesh. Well, we'll see. I'm I'm hoping to get a little bit of string while I'm there. You know, multitask, all of that, but mostly just hanging out, taking in the scenery, trying not to sweat to death. Yeah, and and why Morocco? I have a friend who is in Malawi, and she said, pick a place on your bucket list in Africa. We settled there. So Okay. Well, it's uh, could have gone for the safari. Instead, you're going for the desert. That's a should be a great trip. Um, but meanwhile, let's take a little journey into the Week in Review. So let's start with food. And uh, to set the table, we mentioned last week's show that, that Lauren, you had been down to uh, the uh, an ag tech conference that Forbes magazine puts on. Uh, this is the second year. I had gone last year, and uh, I was struck by the pretty much absence of any mention of climate change, which, you know, droughts or anything else as it relates to agriculture. And it sounds like it, things were different this year. Yeah, so I finally had some time to sort of pull the pieces together for a story we published this week with the headline, From GMOs to Robots, the Fight Over the Future of Food is Here. Um, so GMOs, obviously lots of sort of underlying environmental controversy there, but I was pretty struck by the fact that you had speakers talking about the sustainable development goals, sort of supply chain risk in the face of climate change. So it seems like maybe this these are issues that are permeating the mainstream a little more. Do you have any sense of why that flipped? I mean, is it was it because of Paris and was it because of the introduction of the SDGs last September? I would say more sort of uh, inability to deny in drought stick in California. Drought was sort of the jumping off point for a lot of this, which then led people to say, hey, this is also happening in Ethiopia and in Syria. And isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. And we and it's also the fact that I imagine that that the market for organic uh foods uh, has grown and not just at the consumer level but at the at the raw supplier level that companies like Kellogg's and Kashi and others uh, General Mills and and a lot of those big brands are now scrambling to because they can't get enough organic uh, grains and and other ingredients that they need, and this is we've seen this in the past uh, for a while. Uh, Stonyfield Farm for a few years ago was was struggling to find enough organic milk, and so there is a a, a demand uh, uh, surge that um, 
uh, I think is changing the way farmers need to farm. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about the margins in farming and uh, sort of what's going to happen to the more traditional labor-intensive slimmer margin foods that a lot of that does come from this area in Salina, strawberries, lettuce, artichokes. Um, and so th- that brought us to some of the, the bigger controversies of the event, and that was there was a lot of different robot Tech, robotics technologies there. Uh, one was from Harvard. I profiled. They're called soft robotics. Uh, they mimic the grip that an octopus has because the knock against robots has always been that they'll damage the fruit. They'll crush it with the metal hands. Mm-hmm. But this uses sort of like a plastic synthetic type grip so it can take a more delicate fruit like a tomato or a lettuce and not crush it um but that's, it was that's biomimicry it's mimicking what a nature would do to and in this case the octopus i love it exactly yeah it was really interesting and i think the question from here then you had a lot of farmers there that were talking about uh like florida-based duda farm fresh foods was one there was another uh called hmc farms in california's fresno area that were there talking about how uh human labor is getting more and more challenging for them because immigration crackdowns higher wages also maybe people have options to take jobs in other fields or in other countries um so they're saying right now they they haven't been able to harvest about 10 percent of their crops leading to a lot of food waste so great if robots can step in there but then what happens after that 10 percent to the things that are still jobs that are done by humans right and the robots aren't going to eat the profits either uh what's the conversation about gmos down there So the conversation about GMOs was also pretty fascinating. They're talking mostly in the context of how the issue has been such a conversation killer in the past, but now with issues of food security starting to rise to the fore again and things like the Sustainable Development Goals out of the UN, um, there were folks from places like Texas A&M University saying that you really have to consider GMOs. And her rationalization, her name was Julie Borlaug with A&M's Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture. She said, please never use the term genetic engineering again. Just call it hybrid 3.0, hybrid 4.0. Everything has been genetically modified. I'm sure there are many people that would beg to differ with that. Um, But I think that's an area that we're going to hear a lot more about as we talk about meeting the needs of a global population of 9 billion people in the next couple decades. I'm sure there was also a lot of eye candy there as there was last time, just attractors and, you know, octopus drones, thing. Yeah, drones, 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 drones. drones. But drones. also um, <laughs> one of the subsets of this field that I think is a little farther along is precision agriculture, where you're putting sensors in the field to measure uh, fertilizer inputs, water inputs, the idea being that you can radically increase the efficiency of food production. By putting exactly what's needed inputs at water, fertilizer, pesticides, where it's needed, when it's needed, based on temperature and soil conditions and everything else. Yeah, really, not just the, the blunt force exactly. spraying. Exactly. And yeah, and it's a little bit of an easier sell because you can probably also save money on oh, things yeah. like fertilizer, Absolutely. water. I caught up with Mark Young, who is the chief technology officer of the Climate Corporation. They're a precision farming and food analytics company that many of you might remember because they were acquired by none other than Monsanto for about a billion bucks a couple years back. Here's what he had to say about the state of the ag tech industry and why we might be seeing some shifting in the competitive landscape in the coming months. So we run into this problem constantly. How do we take in massive amounts of data? Because we want we want more data. We want, you know, as data scientists, we never have enough data, right? So how do we take in massive amounts of data, but then turn it around into something that makes sense for customers, right? 
we, and I'll give you a really simple example. We've got a lot of climatologists, atmospheric science, meteorologists that pride themselves on having the most accurate weather system, right? We can take an air, a field area and take a very high, high accuracy amount of precipitation that we can calculate fell in that area. We do it with a lot of different like 3D radar, all kinds of things that we use to, to try and calculate that. We can say, okay, over this entire field, the, the median amount of rainfall was 1.31 inches, let's say. And we can put that in a tool. When a grower sees that, they will go out to their rain gauge, which is like one cylinder on one post, and they'll say, oh, my, it only says 1.1 inches, and you're telling me 1.31 inches. Well, that creates an issue for us because what we found is there's a huge amount of variability. If I was to put a rain gauge on every post around that field, you could have a half-inch difference around that field, right? So there's a huge amount of variability, and what we're calculating is a median volume that has fallen on that geospatial area, right? So what we found is while we can calculate that, that's not the best way to convey the information because the decision that the grower is making based on that data is whether or not they can go out and work that field. They don't need to know 1.31 inches calculated on a medium geospatial area, right? What they need to know is more than an inch. More than an inch says, you know what, I can't go work that field today. It's going to be too muddy. So we're constantly finding ways to improve the way we present data and the way we present um, the decisions that need to get made uh, or data to base those decisions on uh, to the grower. And, you know, it's it's early days. You know, we're probably a year or two into this, um, and we're, we're constantly improving. We changed the way we colorize our satellite imagery this year, for example, because what we found is, the uh, you know the colorization is what brings out the contrast in that data. Too few colors gives too sharp a contrast. You lose detail. Too too much uh, you know uh, or too little contrast, and now it's it's too soft. You can't see you can't see gradations, right? And so we changed that from last year to this year, and we have already had some amazing examples of people noticing issues just with that new colorization scheme, right? And that's just a way that we, it's the same data, basically, same satellite imagery data that anyone else has, but the way we present that data that helps growers recognize things and makes those decisions is constantly getting better. Well, speaking of big global shifts, uh, let's turn to a piece that uh, our colleague uh, John Elkington wrote this week on uh, Brexit, deglobalization, and the stakes of systems in chaos. <laughs> You know, chaos is certainly something we're seeing lately. If you look at Brexit, you look at uh, the anti-globalization movement of the Republican Party in the United States. And, uh, you know, the question is, is what's the impact here on some of the big global issues? Uh, And I was struck by uh, John's kind of, uh, you know, skepticism or he said they called the skeptic in me. Uh, was, was wondering that the Sustainable Development Goals, this is the 17 goals that were passed by the United Nations uh, in, in last September to replace the Millennium Development Goals, which you know, committing countries of the world to fighting some of the big challenges like hunger and female empowerment and uh, lots, of, uh, lots of other things, um, that he said the SDGs, as they're called, suddenly have become even more distant than their 2030 time horizon made them appear when they were launched last year. Um, given the fact that, you know, we seem to be, at least some countries seem to be retreating into our national borders. 
And then you look at a situation like what's going on in Turkey. Uh, I was struck by John's column. I was editing it actually the same day all the news was coming out of Turkey. And he has a quote that we pulled out that says, history shows that when markets fail, democracy also is at hazard. So I think really this conversation sort of brings to life these intersections between political stability, um, sort of social discord, and aspirations to be more sustainable societies and how when one of those links in the chain breaks, you're looking at a a pretty volatile situation. Yeah. And and in some ways, that makes the case why the sustainable development goals are even more important. You can't have a healthy economy with uh, in an unhealthy society. You can't have a you know, healthy companies in an unhealthy society. And so the, the cultural piece of this, uh, and, and not just cultural, but the social piece in terms of well-being of citizens and, and employment and access to food and water, housing, energy, and all the basic necessities, and, and by the way, jobs, um, you know, becomes a defining issue of our time. And that's what I think we're seeing unfold in Turkey and in UK and, and perhaps in the United States as well. So it's a really thoughtful piece, as John Welkington always has, uh, produces for us. And uh, we really encourage you to check that out. I think the last thought in there that perhaps it's time for a European reset, I would argue that you could expand that far beyond Europe, uh, is something that maybe we should be looking at. Uh, So we'll see, as John says, if we can all rise to this once-in-a-lifetime challenge. And if we can see the forest for the trees, I guess. And speaking of, that brings us to our <laughs> good th- transition. third story that I want to talk about. Last Friday, Lisa Jackson, Apple's uh, vice president for environment policy and social initiatives, gave a speech uh, at a conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico, something called Law, Semina- Law Seminars International's Natural Resources Damages Conference. Who that's, knew? That's who knew, exactly. Um, but what was interesting about that, it was the first time she had talked publicly about uh, some of the things they're doing in forestry and particularly the legal construct of its forestry projects in the United States and in China. So is this having to deal with their packaging and that sort of thing? Well, yeah. I mean, they Apple uses a lot of uh, paperboard um, and therefore forestry pulp in, in their in their packaging. And um, it is one of those resources that is uh, uh, front and center for them as something that they want to look at, at from a sustainability perspective. And uh, they have done so much um, on their energy side in, in turning energy into a renewable resource or at least harvesting energy from renewable resources. They thought that there was a parallel path for paper. So they've been partnering, they've been buying and protecting forests. And that's really, I think, the interesting part that you don't, you know, wouldn't expect that from a, from a big tech company like Apple. But they've been partnering with groups like the Conservation Fund um, here in the United States to uh, buy some forests in North Carolina and Maine and and protect them, even though they may not be harvesting directly from there. Um, and in China, uh, where the laws are different and don't really allow the uh, ownership or the purchasing of forests, I've been uh, working with WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, uh, it, with some interesting novel mechanisms on on how do you increase responsibly manage forests and create in- incentives in China's uh, domestic markets for purchasing products that come from those forests. 
Yeah, and it looks like this is part of the broader trend toward looking for certified forest products. Uh, in this case, working with the Forest Stewardship Council, an entity that WWF did help create a couple decades ago. Um, and it and that's obviously goes beyond Apple. Since launching the project, WWF has signed up forestry companies that are committed to certifying 150,000 acres to the FSC standard. Um, I know probably much more than that when you look at initiatives going back several years beyond that but that's sort of a perennial issue what and not just with forest sort of what is considered in these certifications how does each company tackle these issues yeah and this really goes to uh, an issue that we're just we've been going on for a long time but we've just seen it step up over the past year or so about um, companies digging ever deeper into their supply chains where it's not just their suppliers but their suppliers 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 in some cases to really look at um how can they how can they get some transparency and traceability to ensure that that, that what they're getting is uh, indeed sustainably produced whether it's uh, fisheries or forestries or forests or, or or whatever it is and and i think this is really interesting to see and how do you do that across borders from in countries with as differing laws as the united states and china in terms of ownership and and what you can do so i think this is a really uh, it's really great that she was willing to talk about it and and open the the kimono a little bit in terms of what uh, how you do these things how you actually take these things on in the real world This week, we took a deep dive into what may be coming next in clean energy. Uh, We know a lot of times that finance and money, how you're going to finance solar, wind, other types of renewables projects is often kind of a topic that brings a conversation to a grinding halt. So diving into why that all may be changing this week was our senior writer, Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So let's just start with the basic. What's starting to change in renewable energy finance? What seems to have changed is that traditional mainstream financers, as in banks and mutual funds and even pension funds, are moving into this space. They no longer see wind and solar as risky, particularly big projects on uh, utility-scale projects or big commercial operations. Do we know why that sort of risk calculation is changing? So what's changed is that solar and wind are no longer seen as risky because they are in fact producing steady returns where they have been, you know, in big commercial projects or on utility scale projects. And therefore, banks and particularly mutual funds and pension funds who have shied away from anything that has too much risk, see them as what analysts say are like steady, predictable return producing investments. Yeah, it's interesting because I see you point out that a recent climate bonds initiative report uh, showed that in just the past six months, the issuance of green bonds has surpassed almost the full year total for 2015. So by mid-July, $38.43 billion worth of green bonds have been issued compared to about $41 billion for all of 2015. So you're talking about a huge amount of money here and also some innovation in the types of bonds, it sounds like. Right. So that itself is indicative of what's happening and thereby all sorts of issuers, you know, pretty mainstream issuers, uh, State Street, BlackRock, um, various corporates, then state governments, national governments. And then another indicator of all this is Bloomberg, New Energy Finance reports astounding numbers being invested in renewable 
electricity generation. So just this week, they revised their 2015 estimate up to $348 billion being invested. And we're on track to have uh, $7.8 invested in the next 25 years. That's global? Global investment in electricity generation. That's from renewable sources. A lot of that is because new electricity generation is overwhelmingly renewables as opposed to fossil fuels. Two-thirds of new projects are now renewables. And then I also heard from some folks who do engineering analysis of solar and wind projects. I went to the InterSolar Solar Industry Trade Show last week in San Francisco, met with people from um, DNVGL and from Rec Solar, and they talked about a huge surge in interest in from banks in financing solar projects, and but needing kind of a third-party analysis, due diligence of all the engineering aspects of it. So these are really big financial players we're talking about when you get into the mutual funds and the pension funds. Obviously, uh, a lot of these groups have also come under pressure. Uh, like The Rockefeller Foundation is probably one of the more high-profile examples of a big institutional group that has divested from fossil fuels. But there is also some spillover when you get folks from the Keep It in the Ground movement in particular that are really lobbying all sorts of financial investors to pull their funds out of fossil fuels and reinvest them into renewables. So with that backdrop, Barbara, what did you learn about what's currently happening in the space for mutual funds and pension funds? What's interesting is that mutual funds and pension funds seem to be going into these investments not for political purposes, but for money-making purposes. So according to Ethan Zindler, analyst with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, These big funds are seeing utility-scale solar and wind projects and big commercial-scale solar and wind as um, producing predictable returns, steady, predictable returns. So mutual funds and pension funds are coming in and um, buying out the startup investors for projects that are already operating. He described it more as going after the the returns and the the money-making aspect and not anything political. Here's a bit of the conversation I had with Ethan Zindler of Bloomberg. The exciting thing we're starting to see a little bit more of are pension funds try to invest directly into projects um, or portfolios of projects. And that's where things start to get very exciting because those are very, very big pools of capital, much larger uh, on a a, total basis than the volumes of capital we've seen invested in so far. We tracked $330 billion or so last year. To be clear, the vast majority of our people investing purely to make a return. The thing is, though, there's only certain types of investors that can invest in individuals, wind projects, or are willing to invest in startup companies. What you need is the capital that's willing to come in and reinvest, basically take out the financing for an existing operating project. So big, giant piles of money, very risk-averse groups that want to put money in but are heretofore been uncomfortable doing it. That's starting to change, and it's really exciting because they get the technologies, they understand the risks. The thing that's the harder twist as we look forward, as I was saying before, is emerging markets. So, okay, they get comfortable with solar, they get comfortable with wind, and they, they know they produce good returns and whatever. But now we want to do it in Zambia, or we want to do it in Morocco, or wherever. And there's 
risks they are associated with those countries that have nothing to do with clean energy that simply have to do with investing there. Interesting to hear that financial perspective. I'm curious, though, when you think about sort of the big picture around climate and the transition to renewable energy, um, you've got the Paris Accord in play and a lot of talk about just the massive scale of investment that's needed. Um, Where are we in terms of the feasibility of making these changes uh, in time to be impactful? So that's a good question, Lauren. Because even with the $7.8 trillion investment in renewable energies that are expected to happen between now and 2040, based on current trends, that's not enough to meet the goals of the Paris Accord. Bloomberg has estimated that to meet the goal of keeping global temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius, there would need to be $12 trillion global investment in renewable energy. That's a heck of a lot of change. Yeah, really. Big, big money in play. Lots of changing dynamic, it sounds like. And we'll continue to follow it. Thanks so much, Barbara Grady, for joining us. You're welcome. addition to our normal slate of articles, we took a little detour and had a Twitter chat. Uh, you could follow along with that. There, it's all archived now. Hashtag eco finance chat. That's ECO finance chat. And our partner on that was Clean Energy Finance Forum, a great publication out of Yale University. And joining now is Kat Friedrich, who is the news editor of Clean Energy Finance Forum and Conservation Finance Network. Hi, Kat. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So can you just give us uh, some quick background? What is Clean Energy Finance Forum for those who might not be familiar? Clean Energy Finance Forum is a media project that's based at Yale Center for Business and the Environment. We cover financing for solar power and energy efficiency, and we source articles in a regionally diverse way throughout the United States. We also cover some international stories. This year, we've been very involved in following up on financing from the Paris Agreement and analyzing reports and legislation from the United States. There have been a lot of exciting developments this year. Um, The students on both of our teams develop subject matter expertise while working on these projects. And we also offer webinars um, through the Blueprint for Clean Energy series and the Nature's Returns series. We also make infographics and sometimes engage in data journalism. Yeah, lots of great stuff. Like I said, we'll be sure to link to you guys as well. So that brings us to the Twitter chat going on yesterday. What was the idea behind hosting a Twitter chat? I know this isn't the first time you guys have done this, but but what's the hope with using that platform? This Twitter chat is intended overall as an opportunity for people who are interested in energy efficiency and financing and solar power to dialogue online, make connections, and overall share ideas about how commercial energy efficiency can become a more vital and energetic market. That was the purpose of this specific chat. We're having a series of eco-finance chats, which we're co-hosting with GreenBiz. For this chat specifically, um, there was research from Institute for Market Transformation that showed that the market needed to thaw. Landlords were reluctant to take the leap and make their buildings more efficient, and um, some see it as a luxury to do that. Others are too busy focusing on other tasks. 
Although many tenants would pay a premium in terms of increased rents, landlords seem to not be aware of that. So we talked about the different options for solving these issues. Um, what were some of the highlights? It looked like there was some good engagement going. Uh, I saw that hashtag energy efficiency several times for sure. Um, and what, what were you hearing online? It was interesting how um, talking with um, Institute for Market Transformation and the other stakeholders who were present um, gave rise to some questions that came from other research. And we saw a reference, for example, to a report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that we hadn't discussed before. And um, that was related to this issue. Um, we saw a lot of dialogue about how banks are conservative about risk taking. So when there's a lack of demand in the market, that leads to low interest from banks. And um, one of the speakers said that this was more or less a chicken and egg question. If we don't have the ball rolling so far, um, then how can we get the ball rolling if um, landlords are not terribly interested and banks seem to be not responsive because the landlords are not interested or just don't necessarily know if there's a market or not? So um, the lack of data was one source of this issue that was pointed out. We need to think about considering energy efficiency during underwriting, and it's also important for packaging financing for commercial energy efficiency, along with larger retrofits to be considered as an option that simplifies the process for landlords. Overall, um, the data issue comes up when building owners are skeptical about um, the premiums that they might see after they do an energy efficiency retrofit. So typically, uh, um, even though there is some data available showing that tenants are in fact willing to pay more after the energy efficiency retrofit is installed, building owners still are not sure that there's enough data out there. But in a larger sense, it seems as if there hasn't really been very much public outreach. So because there is a lack of public outreach to building owners, they may be skeptical just because, you know, they're business people and they want to make sure that they have good return on investment. So um, as a result, even though energy efficiency has a good payback time compared to solar, um, they may not necessarily think of it. If energy efficiency tends to not be terribly visible, they may not be aware that it has as many, as many advantages as it does. Mm -hmm. um, one, one stakeholder who is from Green Bank Network mentioned that it's possible to aggregate efficiency projects to lower costs and that green banks are involved in doing this right now. There was also something else promising taking place, which is that appraisers are talking with contractors and bankers to develop energy efficiency standards and um, try to put those in place in the United States. I'm not sure how that's going internationally as a whole, but at least within the United States, there's that dialogue taking place. Mm -hmm. So um, so that was um, what we discussed. And overall, it seems as if, um, so to speak, baking energy efficiency into the process in terms of having solid data about performance, um, having solid outreach, um, and really making those connections so that people can see that there is a real market is really what's needed. All good issues to look at. I know that chicken and egg question is certainly one we've heard about as well. Um, great. Well, Kat Friedrich, who is the news editor of Clean Energy Finance Forum and Conservation Finance Network, thanks for giving us the download on the Twitter chat. Again, you can look at the archived version of that chat, hashtag EcoFinanceChat. We'll also have some stories coming up, wrapping in the highlights. Um, stay tuned for our next chat and check out the links in this week's story for more.
So let's look to a story that you're working on, Lawrence. And I teased it at the beginning of this show, which is about Ford and the idea of of working with Jose Cuervo to uh, use agave as a next generation material. And what is going on here? What, how does this the circular economy and uh, and yeah. Yeah, it's a lot to make sense of. So the the gist of bringing Jose Cuervo into the picture is that Ford, the their marketing term for it is sort of farm to car, but really what they're talking about is finding localized waste sources near their assembly plants, manufacturing operations. So in this case, they have a big assembly operation in Mexico. Jose Cuervo came to mind as a company with a big enough scale that works with uh, plants, agave. Uh, they process two to 300 tons of agave every day in the making of their tequila, so big, reliable feedstock. Um, and at this point, uh, they've signed an agreement for Ford to take the material and work with it in a limited sense to see where they might be able to incorporate it. Um, But again, this gets back to the much broader idea that we've talked about, uh, which is the concept of the circular economy, where you're taking things that would traditionally be wasted or looking to minimize natural resource inputs and sort of keep things flowing in a cycle, sort of the evolution of all these closed loop manufacturing concepts. It's also the bio-based economy, something where we're we're using plants to replace um, petroleum and other things. And uh, agave is, of course, a... a, a, uh, a cactus, I guess, that's grown in um, in southern Mexico, and uh, we've used it for a long time. The 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 fiber that comes off is is, good, is called sisal, s i s a l, and it's, there's been sisal, or I think that's how you say it, it might be uh, sisal or something. Uh, the paper uh, has been on the market for a long time. It's not a it's a niche product. It's not a big source, but the point is is they've been trying to extract the fiber and find ways to use it um, uh, for a long, long time. Exactly. And it also goes kind of beyond that one feedstock. Ford has also looked at things like wheat straw, rice husks. They have some sort of soy foam. In a lot of these instances, they're looking to reduce the petroleum going into plastics. Uh, Eventually, they would hope to sort of move away from it. Right now, it tends to be like a 20% blend, something like that. Um, But I asked Debbie Maluski, who oversees Ford's sustainable materials efforts, sort of an interesting job, uh, about the work they're doing with Jose Cuervo and sort of their broader experience in this world of unconventional plastic or bio-based materials. We've just learned over the past 15 years how to research, develop, put these more environmental materials on our cars, and then all the stuff about how to do it locally. So we have been looking at farm to car, just like people in society are looking at farm to table, local foods. And we were thinking, well, we have an assembly plant in Mexico. What is heavily grown there? What sort of waste products? and plant-based products could we tap into? And Jose Cuervo, of course, came to mind because they produce 200 to 300 tons of agave each and every day. And so imagine the amount of fiber there that we could look at reinforcing plastics for cars. So our announcement is basically small quantity research. So we called Jose and talked to them about would they be interested in looking for alternative uses for agave fiber. They were very thrilled about that opportunity. Um, And so right now they're shipping us small quantities. We're able to distribute it and chop it into the size we need, distribute it into plastics pretty evenly. Um, We get good mechanical properties. We still have for certain applications some odor 
issues that we need to resolve, but we've done it for other natural fibers. So that's sort of where we are. We feel really good about it for applications like wiring harnesses, HVAC, storage bins. Um, there's a lot of places on the car where this could end up. And so now the hard work is going to be who will be the material supplier. So Jose would supply the fiber to a plastics compounder. And, you know, this is an opportunity for them to develop their own um, sort of material supply. And it doesn't have to only be for automotive. If, if a material can pass performance and durability requirements in a car for 15 years, it can be put in a lot of places. We have put rice hulls, which um, I had no idea. I learn every day that rice was grown in significant quantities in the southeast part of the U.S. as electrical brackets in the F-150. So that's under hood. That doesn't have um, an odor issue. It replaces talc, which is very dense and heavy. We've done wheat straw for storage bins in the Ford Flex. So that's a natural fiber. You harvest the wheat. You chop the straw, which farmers in Canada burn currently. Um, that's at 20% in the Ford Flex, and it also reduces weight. Um, so this fiber, we're still in the transformation of would we, where would we put it? Because we do have some uh, odor issues with it. I think it smells quite interesting. It's got like sort of a little bit of a burnt coffee smell. We have learned how to remove that out of other fibers. So um, you wouldn't want that in the cabin every time you got into your car and shut the door, especially on a hot day like today. Um, but we've resolved these before. So I think we would start with maybe an underhood component um, an H, well, probably not HVAC unless we solve the odor issue. So you can see, you can, um, and you can also improve the mechanical properties as a function of time by getting the fiber distributed better, by compatibilizing it, by treating it before mixing it with the polymer. And so even if we start with a very low uh, requirement thing like a bin, we can move up with time. So this is really cool stuff. I guess my question, because this has been going on for a long time, I remember it was a few years ago, it might have been Ford, it could have been GM, was using um, shredded uh, denim from Levi's jeans uh, factories, uh, waste denim, I guess, or used uh, denim to, to uh, use as padding. In, and they've been using hemp fibers and rice straw, a number of things, as you've said. Does this scale or is this just kind of a, a niche thing that gives them a, a nice glow? The scale issue is funny here. Uh, you mentioned the work GM has done. Ford in the past has worked with Coca-Cola on one of their efforts at a bigger scale, which is pulling fibers out of PET plastic bottles and weaving that into fabric that is now used on the upholstery inside of a car. Um, but Maluski said that the real issue here is actually getting a new program off the ground. It's sort of establishing that, one, these materials can be used in a car without issues that are going to alienate a consumer, like bad odors or that they'll melt or something like that. Um, but then from there, you do need to sort of dig deeper into the supply chain and find a middleman. In this case, what they're going to need is a, a plastic producer that's willing to take Jose Cuervo's waste agave and then process it and sell it to Ford. So potentially there's a revenue opportunity there for Jose Cuervo monetizing the waste. This is something that you're seeing more companies look at. GM, I know, is one of the companies that say they now generate a billion dollars in revenue a year uh, combined with all of their sort of waste and recycling efforts. So there's definitely money to be found. It's sort of finding the right 
way to put the puzzle pieces together. And I did ask Debbie from Ford about this, and here's what she had to say about the broader supply chain challenge here. So we've been pushing all the chemical companies and suppliers to look at waste products, to look at things we can grow to replace petroleum-based plastics. Um, 15 years ago, we looked like we were crazy. 10 years ago, we looked like we were crazy. And we've just been slowly, slowly doing the work and putting it onto our vehicles. And realistically, there's no durability, performance issues. These materials are tough. They're durable. They perform. They look good. And so we've just found, we've just learned more and more about the advantages of using them. So we will interact with the DAOs, anybody on the planet, and show them what we're doing in the hopes that we can, you know, of course, Ford doesn't produce plastic or reinforced plastic. So we have to get the supply base as excited as we are to get them involved to develop the um, material stream. So I think we're sort of in the infancy of the circular economy. Really, there's very few examples where people are using other people's waste, where we're really being efficient. Um, So I see every little accomplishment as a big deal still, just demonstrating, you know, that these things can be done. We have learned more from other non-competitive large corporations probably than anywhere else in our travels and in our research. We've worked with Coca-Cola, Nike, Procter & Gamble, Heinz, um, and just understanding what's important to them, what their environmental targets and goals are, and how they ended up achieving environmental benefits has been astounding. And then sort of out of that has fallen out the, of the idea of using other people's so-called waste. So the Heinz project looking at tomato fiber with Heinz fell out of the fact that they were kind of saying, they were kind of grumpy about, oh, we've got billions of pounds of tomato skins and really nothing to do with it. And it's this sloppy mess and it's hard to landfill. And so he said, hey, just for fun, send us some. And they did. And, you know, we work with Coca-Cola using their plant bottle material to demonstrate that we could pull a fiber out of it, make fabric, and we made an entire interior of a fusion um, out of Coca-Cola's plant bottle. And that was shipped around, and, you know, now we're trying to get that material into production. So teaming up with other companies and either using um, the volume of several of the companies together to encourage small suppliers that this material be utilized if the supply chain is established has been super critical. And also it helps to work together to get that circular economy, because if you don't know what other people's waste product is, you can't utilize it. We roll things out one at a time, program by program, and then the volume is ridiculously low, right? Um, So we're doing things with like working with other companies to maybe be able to get access to their pricing and volumes in certain instances to just be able to launch. Um, Once you expand it to our entire volume, then the business case isn't too bad, even with petroleum low. It's just that mountain of one program. We mentioned a couple of automakers here, Ford and GM, but there are lots of other companies playing with this space. We'll link to a couple other stories we've done on sort of online materials matchmaking. Definitely an area of activity to pay attention to as the circular economy gains traction.
Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find links to the organization, stories, events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to our podcast director, Saraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll be taking a little summer break. We'll be back in early August. Uh, Lauren will be off traveling. I'll be uh, doing my thing. But until then, for all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 